The Dorothy Cooya Archive Project is a special writing on the wall commission from National Museums Liverpool. In the last episode, we explored Black Liverpool in the 1970s, the pressures on Black youth in particular from a brutal police force and education system, and Dorothy Cooya's pioneering role as the first community relations officer in the city. As a British-born Black woman active since her teens, Dorothy's experience and knowledge of British racism by the 1980s was quite unique. Also by the 1980s, the tensions created from decades of racial discrimination reached boiling point, as Black youth in cities and towns throughout the UK began an uprise, inspired in the immediate by sustained police harassment. Remembered as a key moment in our national history, the Black British uprisings of the 1980s forced government investigation and legislation setting out new codes for police behaviour. As part of Haringey Council, led by Black left-wing Labour MP Bernie Grant, following the Broadwater Farm estate riots of 1985, Dorothy would use her skills to reveal the extent of corruption within the police, as well as exposing another arm of the establishment maintaining white supremacy, the British media. I'm Project Manager Jenea Pickett, and this is Episode 4 of Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Kuya Podcast. Returning to London in the late 1970s, Dorothy Kuya worked as adult education outreach worker for Kensington, as well as continuing on with the national campaign against racism in children's books and climbing the ranks of the socialist feminist organisation, the National Assembly of Women. In 1979, however, Dorothy once again decided to apply for a first-of-its-kind job role that of Ethnic Minority and Race Relations Advisor for Haringey Council. Haringey, a traditional Labour borough, was considered in the mainstream Conservative press as part of the loony left, with its emphasis on tackling racism, sexism and homophobia. Looking to appoint their new specialist advisor, council members were immediately impressed with Dorothy's body of work. We spoke to former Haringey Council member, MP for Islington North and former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, about Dorothy's appointment and her impression on him as a young politician. We uh, in Haringey had developed a system on the council called the Community Development System. Uh, I'd been a councillor since 1974 and uh, the late Bernie Grant became a councillor in 1978. Um, my job as Chair of Community Development from 74 to 78 was to um, 
ensure that we had sufficiency of community centers across the borough, that we supported local community centers and community organizations. The principle being that London was becoming a place of massive transience, and we were also responsible for the overall um, anti-racism strategy of Haringey Council which often led us into conflict with other sections of the council um, because they didn't agree with the funding of um, individual ethnic community groups. They didn't agree with my funding of anti-racism festivals. In fact, there's a lot of things that we did they didn't agree with, but we fought the case through both within the Labour Party and within the group of Labour councillors. Um, I ceased to be chair of community development uh, in 1978 and Bernie Grant then took over as chair of community development and so it was a very comradely handover and Bernie and I knew Bernie very very well he was a very close friend of mine indeed we were colleagues as fellow union organizers at the National Union of Public Employees until he then got a job as a black union organiser for the Greater London Council after Ken Livingstone became a leader of the council. So Bernie and I were very much at one on all of this and we were also officers of the Haringey Labour Movement um, anti-racist and anti-fascist campaign which um, helped us to organise stuff against the National Front in uh, their attempt to march through Haringey. And so we built up a quite big hinterland of very conscious anti-racism across the borough, which obviously included the Afro-Caribbean community, which was probably the biggest community in the borough at the time, changed later because a lot of Cypriot people moved in, a lot of Turkish people came later, a lot of Kurdish people came at different times. Um, and it's now um, probably, and certainly in Tottenham area, one of the most diverse places in the country. And we were keen to appoint somebody to help us with all this work. And Dorothy's name came up. She was obviously shortlisted straight away on the basis of her application form. And then um, we invited her for interview and we unanimously appointed her. We were very pleased we did. Um, to me, she was um, a breath of fresh air because she was both political, experienced, had gravitas, she wouldn't call it that, but I would. And in her dealings with um, some quite conservative elements in the um, officer class of Haringey Council, she was extremely effective. So we had an enormous amount of time and respect for her. And uh, I got to know her better during that period. Bernie worked with her more closely on a day-to-day -day basis than I did, but obviously I came across her quite a lot. I then became chair of the planning committee which if you like was the parent committee to uh, what bernie was chair of and then things changed and bernie eventually became leader of the council after um in the uh, later into the 1980s to hear a household name like jeremy corbyn speak with such clarity about dorothy's harringay days led us to ask about her reputation at this time Dorothy was a force of nature, diplomatic when she needed to be, incredibly assertive and very, very proud of the work she'd done in Liverpool, as well as that amazing history. And I learned so much from her. We talked about Claudia Jones. 
We talked about the uh, that whole generation of people that helped to found New Beacon Books in Haringey, the people that founded the Notting Hill Carnival, the people that brought a lot of politics um, to the community, and people who'd worked with the African liberation movements as well. So we talked about the Pan-African Unity Conference in Manchester, in Chalton-cum-Hardy, 1945, and um, all of those great writers. And indeed, it was just, to me, a pleasure to know her. I consider her one of my teachers. To think that one of the many young left-wingers inspired by Dorothy and her generation would eventually become leader of the opposition, and one of the most outspoken politicians in the UK on human rights today, gives us an indication of the breadth of her influence. Even into her middle age, Dorothy remained a dynamic activist with fingers in many pies. The list of her activities during the 1980s is quite staggering. Here's Project Archivist Vicky Karen to explain. I wondered if, as Dorothy was approaching 50, she would sort of slow down and she would become less involved. And that doesn't seem to be the case at all. The archive shows that she was just as busy throughout the 1980s going into her 50s um, as, as before. So there are plenty of diaries and notebooks. There are folders of correspondence, conference papers that she was reading, that she attended. There are just as many publications and reports from the 80s. So she's still being, um, she's still being active. She's still reading. She's still learning. In terms of campaigning, she's still involved with the National Assembly of Women. Um, by the 1980s, this is at a national level. She's still involved with the Communist Party. She is part of the Community Equality and Values Working Group at National Museums Liverpool. From 1981 to 1988, she is chair of Ujima Housing Association. And then she's asked, would she be willing to take part in the Brixton Prison Board of Visitors? And this is something she accepts, and she does that for a period of time between 1982 and 1983. Again, she's asked to take part in another group, the Cardinals Advisory Group, and this is looking at pastoral care for black Catholics across London. Also, let's not forget 1981. So Dorothy attends the Women's International Democratic Federation. The Mm. Eighth Congress is held in Prague. So still involved with the peace campaign, Mm. the peace movement, part of the National Assembly of Women. They're all affiliated. So very much active, very much while she's working full-time, in full-time employment. (laughs) Um, Again, I am staggered by her energy, her her passion, and um, no, there's there's no slowing down. Yeah, it's like blinkers, isn't it? It's one cause, you know, that encapsulates many campaigns, but she's just determined right, right the way through her life, isn't she? As Dorothy performed her national and international roles at the National Assembly of Women and as chair of Ujima Housing, a trailblazing black-led housing association, 
The reckoning that she and many other activists had warned about throughout the previous decade had finally arrived. For context, historian Peter Fryer noted that between 1976 and 1981, there had been 31 racist murders in Britain. And knowing the subtleties of British racism, there were most likely more that went undocumented. Under a 19th century vagrancy act, police had powers to stop, search and question anybody they personally suspected may have or may be about to commit a crime. Known as the Sus Law, as documented in the last episode, this power was exhausted overwhelmingly on black youth. The uprisings began in Bristol in 1980, when on the 2nd of April, hundreds of youth clashed with police, burning buildings, fire engines and police cars in the process. In January 1981, the New Cross fire in South East London killed 13 young black people aged between 14 and 22 attending a birthday party. Given the prevalence of racial attacks during the period, many felt the fire was started by white supremacists, although the inquest drew an open verdict and no one was ever charged in connection with the incident. In the immediate aftermath, a contemporary of Dorothy's, John LaRose, who we mentioned last week, along with others, set up the New Cross Massacre Action Committee, which organised the Black People's Day of Action in March 1981. With some 20,000 people, including black communities from up and down the country, marching eight hours through London in solidarity. The following month, after a police operation called Swamp 81 saw nearly 1,000 black people arrested under the Sus Law in one week, Brixton followed Bristol. Liverpool late followed up in July with nine days of rioting. Altogether, similar scenes of black and white youth clashing with police occurred in over 35 cities and towns throughout the UK, including Southampton, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds and Newcastle. Rioting flared up again when in 1985, police shot and paralysed Brixton resident Cherry Gross. Soon after Liverpool 8 once again went up in flames. On the Broadwater Farm estate in Tottenham, the death of 49-year-old Cynthia Jarrett following a police raid on her home was the final straw there. We spoke with campaigner, former councillor and wife of the late MP Bernie Grant, Sharon Grant about the events surrounding the Broadwater Farm disturbances and Dorothy's involvement. Well, um, as uh, you will know, of course, in 1985, there was perhaps the most serious um, riot or uprising, as we called it, um, in, on Main Nine Britain on the Broadwater Farm estate in, in Tottenham. Uh, the background of that was a whole period of what can we say, um, poor relations between the black community, particularly the young black community and the, and the police. And it came to a head when uh, the mother of one of these young people on the estate died during um, a police raid on one of their homes. 
And there was a lot of debate about um, how she had died, but clearly it was in connection with a police raid on her home. And she died of a heart attack um, during that police raid. And she probably wouldn't have died if that raid hadn't have happened, put it like that. Um, and the, the youth um, rioted on the estate, very serious. And what is uh, most notable, I suppose, is that a policeman was killed during that riot and the estate was basically occupied by thousands. At one point, there were 9,000 metropolitan police officers on that estate for many weeks after the event. Um, and civil rights were abused on an extensive basis. Mothers were taken away and arrested, and the babies left in their cots. It was this is all documented, and it's amazing how things get forgotten. Large numbers of people were arrested um, for uh, with very little evidence, and notably, three people were tried and convicted of the death of the policeman. And that, as we now know, and as they always knew, they were not guilty of that. And the evidence against them was fabricated and they were eventually released um, some years later. But they all spent four or five years in prison um, for crimes they didn't commit. But anyway, we, we wanted to have on the local authority, this is the point Bernie was, was the leader of the council, I was a leading councillor, and um, we wanted the government to have an inquiry of what, what had happened. The government refused, so we decided to commission our own inquiry. And this was led by the then Lord Gifford, Lord Anthony Gifford, the leading QC. And um, we asked a number of people that um, had knowledge and awareness of the diversity of our community on that panel. And Dorothy was one of them. Mm -hmm. He also included some other black solicitors, some other solicitors, etc. And Dorothy in particular was very, very astute in analysing the way in which the media covered these events. And I think I've shared with you um, some of her written contribution to the inquiries in which she contrasted um, the way in which the mainstream media described these events um, with uh, with what some of the, the black newspapers are doing. Basically, the, the, the coverage was highly inflammatory, very little concern for the effect on the black community. The whole, the, the media simply turned the whole situation on its head. But Laura, Dorothy was very sussed and she analysed um, the reporting that, that went on to great effect. I think um, there was, when the inquiry came out, and it's available, her contribution is, is acknowledged, and um, a lot of work she did is reflected in the report, uh, which is, is worthy of study, I think, mm -hmm. because it presented a completely different account of events, a completely different interpretation of events, to what people would have learned about it from reading the mainstream newspapers. As well as her involvement on the Broadwater Farm Inquiry, during the 1980s, Dorothy was a pioneer in racism awareness training, being a founding member of the Greater London Council-funded Racism Awareness Programme Unit, known as RAPU, and later establishing her own organisations, Affamata and the DK Consultancy. Here's archivist Vicky Karen discussing the material in the archive from this period. 
This was a charitable trust set up by Dorothy and others. And what I found interesting was one of the other co-founders was a woman named Bandana Ahmed. Now, she was active in London and she started the Dragon's Teeth Journal that Dorothy later wrote for and was involved in. So again, overlapping, she's meeting like-minded people and they're working together. RAPU was formed in 1978 and Dorothy served as chair from 1981 to 85. And just to point out, Dorothy was a trustee as well and she delivered courses of the weekend. Mm. So she'd do a nine to five with Haringey Council and she would then go and deliver courses at the weekend. Mm. Um, now, she because it was a charitable trust and she was a trustee, she didn't get paid for this work either. Mm. This was all completely voluntary. Uh, the Greater London Council again provided a grant aid for free training in racism awareness courses. And those were tended to be four days, but Dorothy was very active in those. So they had a model called RAT, Racism Awareness Training, and that was based on a model from an American writer, Judith Katz, and that was based on her work on racism awareness, white racism and training. And Dorothy took um, a lot of those models and she formed her own resources, her own training programmes, and that was partly what was used at RAPU, but that was definitely something that was developed more for Affirmata. Mm. So in 1984, she sets up Affirmata with Jean Tate. And Jean had also worked for Haringey Council, but in um, Youth and Community Department. In the archive, there are around nine boxes and it covers the admin, how the organisation was set up, accounts, correspondence, and there's lots of material relating to training. So there are resources and there are exercises and feedback forms. Two-thirds of the courses related to equal opportunities and a third related to career development. But Dorothy was reactive and responsive to changes in legislation. So, for example, um, the Sex Discrimination Act came in in 1986 and you can see how Dorothy is compiling resources ready to deliver Mm -hmm. courses, um, particularly for women on their career development in in light of this this new legislation that's come through. Mm. And just to add, the Affirmata organisation, it later changed and Dorothy became the sole director and it became the DK Consultancy and that operated until um, 1993 and there's a box of material. Again, same, there's correspondence, there's material relating to the training that they um, delivered and ran. Mm. So quite quite busy, quite active right throughout the 80s in terms of the, the training, but also the other campaigning that she was involved in. Yeah, it's like she hadn't, you know, she'd sort of hit a stride, hadn't she, in the 80s, um, you know, even though she'd done so much in the decades previous. I can imagine that by that time she was very well established as, you know, an expert in a field and, um, you know, able to sort of set up independently. Is there any indication of why the DK consultancy winds down in 93? There isn't, no, but I think sort of reading the landscape, um, a lot of organisations had funding cut and it was just not sustainable. But at this point, Dorothy is looking to maybe come back to Liverpool again Mm. Um, we see that she does 
do some more work for another London authority. She works in Watford. But it looks like there may have been an explosion in training and trainers and that seems to have sort of shrunk over time. Mm. So maybe, you know, all the legislative changes took place and there wasn't the demand for such specialist training work. Yeah. But, and not to speak for Dorothy at all, but again, she is getting older at this point. Yeah. So surely she's thinking retirement. Yeah, and I was thinking, um, you know, her family, her mum especially, are all in Liverpool. Um, Yeah, you know, you can... And if she's still got those connections going, as you said, she was working with the museum. So she just seems at this point, you know, that she could step off wherever and, and find a place, you know, for her type of work. Racism awareness training did come under constructive criticism as a simplistic and practical solution to a complex issue such as racism. Although began with the best intentions, the racism awareness training that Dorothy and her colleagues established in a new multicultural Britain positioned racism as a procedural problem that could be fixed by changing a few individual attitudes rather than getting at its deeper colonial roots. By the end of the 1980s, just as state-sanctioned multiculturalism began killing radical anti-racist activism, Dorothy was beginning to make plans for her final return home to Liverpool 8. To see us out, I asked Jeremy Corbyn about Dorothy's role within Haringey Council and the importance of her activism more generally. Well, she was... uh clear-headed, clear-sighted and very assertive and she used a very non-local government parlance and language which was a breath of fresh air to me. So she never talked in local government ease as most local government officials do, endlessly using shorthand for organisations that nobody's ever heard of and it has the effect of alienating a large number of people uh, and that's probably what it's designed to do. So it makes the officialdom seem a group apart from the rest of the community. Dorothy didn't do any of that. And she was pretty straightforward and pretty blunt. And she always um, acted as though um, she didn't owe her life to being an employee of the council. She owed her life to being an activist of the black community. So she brought within her own character, knowledge and determination, something that was almost unique within normal local government setups. I loved her for it. And uh, I think she achieved a great deal. Um, I wish that Bernie was still alive to talk about the experience with her. Uh, But there are some former Haringey councillors, Steve King, Sharon Grant, a few others who would remember Dorothy very, very well and would have a great deal of respect for them because she uh, fully understood the politics of what was happening in the borough where there was um, a move away from an old white left to a much more diverse, younger, uh, old white labour move, more accurately, to a much younger, much more diverse community, which is one of the reasons why Bernie Grant became a councillor became leader of Haringey and um, after Broadwater Farm riots was elected to Parliament, which if you think about it, with all the 
media that was thrown at him over Broadwater Farm, he still got elected as an MP uh, only a very short time later, which says a great deal for the loyalty, particularly of the black community in Tottenham, that they were prepared to stand by Bernie when every single national newspaper was condemning him for um, the remarks he made about police behaviour in Broadwater Farm. Mm -hmm. And then you look at it all those years later, um, the release of the um, Broadwater 3, the various reports that were done and so on, Bernie was right. Yeah. And um, proved to be right as well. And Dorothy, in her own important way, was very much part of that reckoning of the way Haringey... Um, needed to change and need to develop. Dorothy taught me a lot. She probably taught Bernie quite a lot. Um, and uh, she's somebody that we all remember with fondness and affection and somebody that lived her life to be as effective as possible. And uh, her political principles shone through all the time. Uh, because that was an early education in the Young Communist League, her activities as a teenager in the 1930s and 1940s, well, 1940s particularly, 50s certainly formed her her life. It was yeah. quite interesting seeing her in conversation with uh, people of similar age in trade unions and working class movement in Haringey, particularly in Tottenham, who themselves had been through that post-war experience of building the welfare state, but had done it totally through the prism of a white working class labour movement and Mm -hmm. hadn't really reckoned with diversity because they didn't see very much of it. And Mm -hmm. I think um, Andrea Levy's book, Small Island, that section about the activities of um, unions in the post office in the 1940s, trying to stop black people becoming post office van drivers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that racism, the education that didn't happen in the unions at that time and now is seen as normal. And that's where, again, Dorothy's influence on the labour movement in London and helping to set up the black trade union section which Ken Livingstone ensured happened at the Great London Council where Bernie was the first organiser of it important stuff so Dorothy in her own way was probably without realising it laid a lot of foundations for things that came later I don't think she realised how important she was By the 1980s Dorothy Kuya had become a powerhouse advocate for the rights of black and other marginalised communities in Britain. But approaching her 60th year, Dorothy had begun to think about retirement. Little did she know, however, that her return to Liverpool would coincide with council plans to demolish vast swathes of homes, including her own, in the Liverpool 8 area. Her activities with National Museums Liverpool, then National Museums and Galleries on Merseyside, would also influence the opening of the Atlantic Slave Trade Gallery in the mid-1990s and the eventual establishment of the International Slavery Museum in 2007. Dorothy Cuya's last battles would be for her home and the preservation of black legacy in Liverpool and across the African diaspora. 
but more on that next time. Thank you for listening to the Dorothy Kuya podcast. Special thanks to Paul and Tammy for sharing their Auntie Dorothy's archive. Big thank you to the team at Writing on the Wall and National Museums Liverpool for supporting the project. Special thanks to my partner in crime, archivist Vicky Kieran, Project Archives assistant Atius Tago and all our participants. And finally, a very special thank you to Jeremy Corbyn and Sharon Grant for their knowledge and support. This podcast was researched, written and narrated by me, Janaea Pickett, edited by the wonderful Rory Ballantyne with support from Melodic Distraction. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us next time for the final instalment of Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Kuya podcast. <laughs>